0: Chapter 9 The Secondary Cynicisms Part 1 Minima Amoralia Confession, Joke, Crime Quoting Pierre Reverdy I am equipped with an armour that has been welded together entirely out of mistakes. If the six cardinal cynicisms also set up the stages on which idealisms and realisms as well as powers and oppositional powers wrestle with one another, the task is not completed by a first description of them. In reality, what we have separated for the sake of clarity is inextricably tangled. A precise consciousness of reality can only be one that does not fail to note how war and power exist with sexuality and medicine, as well as with religion and knowledge and deep reciprocal interpenetrations and amalgams. But this is only another way of saying that life cannot be grasped through morals and cannot be rationalized with moral explanations. We therefore call someone a moralist who has doubts about the human ability to act Morally, the main fields described here, on which the cynical, cynical tensions inherent in the things themselves develop, mesh and at the same time repel one another, in such a way that the values, norms, and views of each individual are, of each individual area are caught up in increasingly entangled relations to those of the other areas. Even the norms of the military and the state often become tangled and contradict one another, although these two realities, relatively speaking, understand one another best of all. But what will happen when the norms of the military and the state get mixed up and ensnared with those of science and religion, of sexuality and medicine? Due to the complexity and contradictoriness of value systems a critical measure of cynicism must already become an accompanying shadow of any morality just as war brings about a great inversion of moral consciousness by substituting for thou shalt not kill the commandment thou shalt kill as many as possible it also turns the other regional and sectoral ethics systematically on their heads And makes the senseless sensible and the reasonable absurd. In order to save a lot of words I want to refer the reader to Robert Altman's film on the Korean War, MASH 1969, a masterpiece of contemporary cynical satirical consciousness. The way in which, with a well-thought-out and hard-hitting joke, technique Military, medical, religious and sexual cynicism are played into each other, raises this film to the status of a document on the history of ideas. In Hegel's words it achieves what philosophy for a long time has not been able to achieve. It is its time grasped in scenic thoughts, a satirical meditation on the structures and procedures of the cynical joke, offensive and reflective, pointed and true. Indescribable, this blasphemous Last Supper satire, where the field doctors take leave, like the apostles, of a colleague who is weary of life because, after experiencing an erection disorder, he fixes on the idea that he must be gay and cannot imagine how he can admit this to his three girlfriends. Also indescribable are the horrifying and horridly funny operation scenes where the surgeons tell their brutal jokes over soldiers who have half bled to death, think of the nurses tits, and imagine that they are at a baseball game or even on the way home. In the ethos confusion of the field hospital, something of the latent moral chaos in our so-called everyday reality becomes visible because here are the various domains overlap in a brutally clear way. The one domain knocks the morality of the other out of its hands. It becomes almost a principle of survival there to hack up one's own moral substance, so as not to be tempted to believe in some sort of one's own cause. Survival as cynical understatement. The plurality of pronounced quasi-autonomous domains of reality and the corresponding multitude of morals and moral roots are the reason moral everyday life lives on essentially in a moderate amorality and is normally satisfied when things remain by this moderation this is simultaneously the reason why people with a fairly solid and just feeling for reality are against harshness in matters of punishment They know that the punishment and its strict moralism can be more immoral than the actions of those who are punished. Hence, even with Cicero, summum ius, summa inuria. Moral feeling, which self-critically mediates itself with life, means the art of moving through the twilight worlds and contradictions of autonomous and counterposed domains of values, with the least amount of real evil and human damage. As Carl Marcus Michel has shown in his Praise of Casuistry, i.e. the normative exegesis of individual cases, a halfway living morality tells us which sins we should commit in order to avoid graver ones. The moralist who does not judge as the fool of a superego is someone who, in distinguishing good and evil, also knows how to appreciate the virtue of sin. See Kursbuch, number 60, 1980. Morality functions as the capacity to orient oneself towards the relatively better alternative within the universal motliness of given relations. Only in this sense is the need for a new ethics and new values, which today haunts the decaying superstructure, justified. No one should believe in new values those who do can only become neoconservative shopkeepers. If we have already in large measure overstrained ourselves with the old high cultural ethics, the new ethics can only make us look completely ridiculous. A new consciousness of values can only come out of a progressive making conscious of the fact that, and why, for us there can be no innocence except when we suspend every kind of judgment. Wherever it is a matter of values, cynicism is always also in the picture. Anyone who radically defends one scale of values automatically becomes a cynic, expressly or not, on other scales of values. However you happen to be, you always trample on some norms, and if you live in times that make it impossible to be naive about such trampling, then it can happen at any time that you also say it aloud. The confession is for us, therefore. Besides theory, the most important form in which the truth is said. From Augustine to François Villon, from Rousseau to Freud, from Heine to current autobiographical literature, we hear decisive truths in the form of admission and confession. Moreover, those narrative communities that ultimately develop out of all depth psychological practices constitute, in essence, confessional communities that have been morally neutralized through therapy. In motley reality, all talking about oneself necessarily ends up in the vicinity of a blackguard's confession, or a criminal's testament, a sick report, or a story of suffering, a witness statement, or a confession. That is the condition of authenticity in a situation of the unavoidable ethical overtaxing of oneself. Only bastards always have one more excuse, one more white vest to change into, one more spine and one more good conscience. Those who really say what they are and what they have done always and, unavoidably, Nolan's Volans provide a rogues novel, a certification of poverty a story of a young scamp, an image of a fool, a book of twists and turns. What Eric Fromm calls his ethics of being, if one views it properly, aims ultimately at such an upright bearing regarding one's own life, thinking, planning and failure. Without doubt, all that also belongs to being, of which according to certain value systems we should have to be ashamed. We should have to be ashamed. An ethics of being, therefore, if it, and because it, should be a conscious bearing, must lead to a point at which, for the sake of uprightness, all shame also has an end, and at which we confess to everything we are, right or wrong. The ethics of being seeks the truth and authenticity. It therefore demands and encourages confession and honest talking about oneself as the cardinal virtue per se. Before this ethics, all other morals are suspended, even if the various sectoral ethics do not already contradict each other. Those who want the truth cannot simply build theories and see-through masks. They must also create relations among people in which every confession becomes possible. Only when we have understanding for everything, give everything its due, place everything beyond good and evil, and in the end view everything in such a way that nothing human is foreign to us. Only then will this ethics of being become possible because it puts an end to the hostility towards other ways of being. Being as such knows nothing, and is nothing of which it would have to be shamed, apart from conscious crookedness, dishonesty and self-deceptions. Everything can be forgiven, not merely what tradition calls sins against the Holy Spirit and what we today call the lack of authenticity or genuineness or honesty. That consciousness is inauthentic, that consciously does not go into itself because it still banks strategically on the advantage gained through lying. That consciousness is inauthentic, that consciously does not go into itself because it still banks strategically on the advantage gained through lying. An ethics of being would be the ethics of a society in which people help each other with love and criticism so that in every ego, the will to truth can become stronger than the will to power and to come out on top. The ethics of being passes over the sphere of polemical pretense. Only pathological cynics and vengeful negativists admit their mistakes with the intention of committing them again. They even abuse the form of confession in order to struggle and to lie, and not always is seen in this coquetry Coquetry? Coquetry? And not always is seen in this coquetry, with which Zara Leander, as the notorious Miss Jane once sang, I am so and I'll stay so, I am so in my whole body, yes sir. One will have noticed that the series of cardinal cynicisms represents simultaneously a list of the elementary satirical themes, and most important genres of jokes. They represent the main battlefields of elevations and humiliations, idealizations and realistic disillusionments. Here vices and insults, ironies and mockeries have their largest playing fields. Here the frivolous sideswipes of linguistic liberalism still have a morally regulative sense. The military with its tensions between hero ethics and cowards realism, between officers and subordinates front and rear echelons, war and peace, command and obedience. is just as much an inexhaustible generator of soldiers' jokes as politics, with its ideologies, state actions, its great words and small deeds, which provides an indefinite source, excuse me, provides an infinite source of pranks and parodies. It's no different with sexuality, which, with the juxtaposition of the covered and the naked, the forbidden and the permitted, constitutes a vast field for jokes, obscenities, and comedies, regardless of whether it's flirtation, marriage, coitus, or bedroom battles. Likewise, the medical domain, with all its possibilities for sarcasm about health and sickness, madness and normality, the living and the dead. And all the more so with the entire domain of religion, which is more serviceable for swearing and joke-telling than almost any other theme. For, wherever there is so much sacredness, a large, profane shadow arises. And the more saints are honoured, the more comical saints can be found among them. Finally, there is also the area of knowledge, which is criss-crossed by tensions between intelligence and stupidity, joke and citizen's duty, reason and madness, science and absurdity, All these cardinal jokes function in collective consciousness like a drainage system, regulating, balancing, equilibrating, 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 equilibrium Hmm. as a universally accepted regulative mini-amoralism that cleverly assumes that it is healthy to poke fun at what exceeds our capacities to become outraged. For this reason, those who still struggle reject coarse jokes about their own cause. Only when the joke goes inward in one's own consciousness, admittedly from on high, but not too ungraciously inspects itself, does there arise a serenity that reveals not a cynical laughter nor a cynical smile, but a humour that has ceased to struggle. The most astounding profile of our cultural moral situation is probably the insatiable craving of modern consciousness for detective stories. They belong likewise, I think, to the institutions of moral airing and ventilation in a culture that is doomed to live with an excessively high degree of mixing, of norms, ambiguities and contrary ethics. The genre as a whole, in relation to collective ethics, appears as an institutionalized medium for confession. Every detective story is a new opportunity for experimental amoralism. Through fiction it makes happiness in crime quoting Toravilli, accessible to everybody. In the movements of thought in modern detective stories from Poe to the present, these movements of thought in an analysis of cynicism are already anticipated in concentrated form. Good crime stories, every one of them, work to reduce the gravity of the individual crime. If the detective were the representative of enlightenment, the criminal would be the representative of immorality, and the victim would be the representative of morality. However, this constellation regularly becomes shaky when the investigation into guilt reaches the point where the victims, from a dramatic point of view, initially the innocent victims themselves lose their innocence, are cast in a twilight, and are separated from the culprit who assaults them by only a microscopically thin juridical line. This line distinguishes between cynical, non-punishable immoralisms and truly punishable offences. In the most extreme case, it is the culprit who, almost like a provoked enlightener, merely executes on the victim the latter's own amorality. Quoting Franz Werfel, The victim, not the murderer, is guilty. These are the films at the end of which the inspector walks down the street deep in thought and makes a face as if he were sorry to have solved the case. Already in the 19th century, Herman Melville, in his novel Billy Budd, published posthumously in 1924, relates such an inversion, in a tragic setting of course. The hero, an upright, naive, sympathetic figure of light, is systematically provoked by a devilish magazine officer until he knocks the latter down in a speechless fit. The officer, unfortunately, falls on his head and dies with a sneer on his lips because he knows that the boy, who had hit him because he had no other way of expressing himself, must now in turn, according to maritime law, be sentenced to death by the ship's command. The law appears here as an authority that can be used as an instrument of an absolutely evil will, as a weapon of the victim against the, in reality, innocent perpetrator. The great crime novel constructions remain for a long time in an analogously critical moral schema. They draw their vividness from the moral structure of capitalist society. In them, individual crimes often appear either as rather naive, relatively harmless splinters of a universal social cynicism, or as a reflective exaggeration and magnification of behaviours that, on a scale of averages, are not yet pursued as crimes. Hence the two types of perpetrators, here the relatively harmless perpetrators that have stumbled into it, and there the cynical tricksters, grand criminals and monsters of crime. The triumphant success of Brecht and Weill's three-penny opera is based on its ability to set a blackguard's cynicism into a transparent but not moralistic relation to the social whole. As in a Punch and Judy show for adults, the figures flaunt their amorality and their evil artfulness, sing songs about their own wickedness and about the still greater evil of the world, and use cynical sayings and ways of speaking to educate the public to a mode of expression in which it too not completely without pleasure could speak the truth about itself certain symptoms it seems to me indicate that enlightenment dramatization of criminality through theater literature and film has reached its limit the creativity of the various criminal schemata gives the impression of exhaustion The dissolution and thinking through of moral amoral multivalences become increasingly too pretentious, too artificial, and not binding enough for today's mentalities. The trend hints at a more brutal way out of the tension, in an inclination to break loose, to massacre, to explosion, to catastrophe. Preambivalent forms of thinking win, everything or nothing, fantastic or shitty, good or bad, Balm or sugar, okay or not okay? In the place of subtle investigations of cases comes more and more frequently fascist artistic release. Tense situations no longer call for mediation and diffusion, so much as for things to be blown to smithereens.